This is God's word. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And the book of Mark, um, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, say the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Our God of grace. come into these doors and we come from different journeys and experiences. We may sometimes come and we feel like we come kicking and screaming, whether a friend has invited us or whether we're just not in the mood but something kind of draws us. Sometimes we come with thankful hearts. Sometimes we come confused, sometimes we come And we know that we are in pain. And we might even be paving over it to get through each day. Or using something to numb ourselves to reality. Coming from all these places and many more. We have a moment now where we we seek uh, some clarity. We seek something from the outside, something from you in this odd practice within the Christian tradition of listening to these things that have been passed on to us. We believe it's a process you have been a part of and you've brought things to us that shine light into a dark world. And so we read the story of the scriptures and we reflect on them and we look 
for you to pierce through into our world, for you to be real. Quite frankly, we might not be seeing signs today that that's true. And so as we sit here more confused, broken, and frail than we want people to know, will you shine again the light of your undeserved mercy and grace on us? You are the God, the story tells us, who moves towards broken lives and failed attempts at devotion. That you come into the brokenness and you bear it on yourself to save us from it. And that's how you show us grace. Teach us now through that kind of love and grace and through the presence of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you been a part of a social interaction where somebody is asked a question and they don't quite hear it right? And um, they might ask for a repeat or they might not. But instead of waiting to, to get it right, they kind of just push through and jump out into no man's land of answering the question that they thought they heard. Have you ever seen an interaction like this? Um, I think I've, I've seen several of these. And maybe you've been in it. I'm the kind of person I'd be the likely to create it or to be a part of it, be a main player in the awkwardness. Sometimes even you'll see the person pause and, they, and, and it's that, that pause knowing that they're, not, that they're confused, that they're not hearing it right. And for whatever reason, just pushing through and deciding, well, it must be this. And then going out into that scary terrain of answering, you know. I think that says something about our human desire for clarity, is that we'll, you know, why would you just push through? Why would you launch out into and assume you have clarity when you just absolutely don't? We're quick to try to grab hold of clarity. We're quick to try to say, we get it, we understand, we're in the know. And uh, basically, I think we have an intolerance for the unknown, confusion, for things that aren't categorized. We have an intolerance for things that are unclear, that are confusing. I don't have the, um, the reference, but one researcher that I was reading about um, in this past year who studies kind of the effects of the digital age on those uh, younger than myself who have grown up basically um, always knowing a world where you communicate with your thumbs, you know. And one of the interesting tidbits that I read was that what we're losing is we're losing social awkwardness and confusion. In many ways, we're, we're entering a world where people are used to managing every little thing. And sure, you get the autocorrect issue, right? So you, sometimes you have that. But beyond that, this idea that essential to social interaction actually is a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of confusion and lack of clarity. That was fascinating. You know, that the manufactured surprises, or the unmanufactured surprises, actually, are, are essential to just how we interact socially. And it makes me wonder, as you sit here today, you walk in here and you've got a, your own trajectory of your rela- relationship with God, and I wonder how much of that impulse to understand and to have clarity, how much of that defines the very problem you might be sitting here with God today. Because life is throwing confusing things 
um, at you and you may not get it right now. Uh, you know, there's um, just an excruciating issue to deal with in the work world for you. Unbearable. Betrayal. Someone close has, in a sense, stabbed you in the back or just disappeared from your life. You face a financial struggle that you thought for sure you had planned and calibrated in order to avoid. You've got just unbearable issues and tension within your extended family or maybe your immediate family. Or just loneliness. The gnawing aloneness that you feel doesn't seem to go away. I wonder how much of that defines how we interact with God, how confused or mad or demanding we are of God and how we tend to pray for clarity. It also makes me wonder if our obsession for clarity and understanding might be keeping us from experiencing and encountering and entering into what God is actually doing amidst the confusion. Um, thankfully, we have a story today that if you are in any, any of that just resonated with you, that this story is perfect because the triumphal entry, as it's, I think that's what it's called in here, the triumphal entry. No, that's not what it's called in this version. The title that they put here, which is just a manufactured title, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. And we talk about it as the triumphal entry. We talk about it as Palm Sunday, the day where we talk about this. It's actually a very confusing, bewildering story that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it it actually ushers you into the hallway of Holy Week, which is one of the most bewildering, puzzling, confusing weeks within the church's kind of celebration of the story of Scripture. And so um, we look at this, at this interaction, this journey of Jesus on this donkey's cult into Jerusalem, and it's, it's really a parade. It's Jesus' parade to Jerusalem, and, and it's similar to our modern-day parades. I asked the question last week, what's the best parade you've ever seen? And we got all kinds of answers to this question. Every week there's a question of the week. You can answer the one for next week if you want on the contact card. So somebody talked about mother, a mother duck bringing her chicks across the road. Somebody talked about a parade of women in Africa wearing bold, bright fabrics entering the church for Sunday services. Somebody else said, all my pity parades. They are epic. I like that. Um, and then we got a mention of the Ammon Blossom Parade in Ripon, California, which is a shout out to my hometown. There's the Disney's Electrical Parade. I didn't even know that existed. And the Swiss Fasnacht Carnival, Mardi Gras, whatever you want to call it. Mini chalets pulled by impeccably clean tractors with beautiful flowers on the front. Life-size elephant replica. Amazing detailed masks and crazy musicians playing their hearts out. Parades. A parade is interesting because it's actually not about where... The people and the uh, floats are going. It's not about a destination, is it? It's, you could use that phrase that Mark Twain used about golf, that a parade is a good walk wasted, right? Because it's not about where you, 
It's not about where you go. You don't talk about people parade to somewhere. You say people parade before. You know, you're parading before the world. You know, that kind of phrase. Because the parade is about what's being shown while you're doing this walking. You know, you might as well have the audience walk a, be the one walking past the floats, you know, in a sense. Because the parade's actually not going anywhere. And in many ways, when you look at this passage, it's confusing because this is Jesus' parade. And if you look at the ending, you see that it, you know, it's kind of like the end of a parade when you see the, you know, the group of clowns smoking cigarettes or something like that. You know, it's kind of like the luster is lost because what you see is Jesus, he comes to Jerusalem. And what does he do when he gets there after this big parade? He just turns around and goes right back to Bethany. That's all, that's what he does. What is going on? And you look at the beginning and you see how it's, it's very manufactured with this first century um, kind of sense of production value that Jesus is putting into it. The first, really almost all of this story is chock full of explanations of how Jesus orchestrates a certain things to happen while he's making this, um, this you know, like one mile walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. He's, he's, you know, setting these guys up to go in and give the secret password to get the donkey, you know, and they get it. And then he's, you know, he has, he sits on it the right way. And it's all about this ancient scripture reference about the king coming into Jerusalem, the Messiah coming in on a, on a donkey, on a colt. And then they're singing that song and they're all getting it and they're laying cloaks down. It's all this demonstration. It's very much like a parade. Except it, it doesn't really end the way that a triumphal entry you would expect it to end. It, it confuses us. If you, what would make sense is if, is if it was a lot more like um, historical entrances of kings into conquering cities that we're used to, the stories we're used to. I looked up the story of uh, Muhammad coming into Mecca. And this is, I mean, this is, this is it, exactly. This is exactly what Jesus' entrance to Jerusalem doesn't have. There's three, there's three key battles over five years that are fought um, against the Meccans. And then after these battles, after the tide is starting to turn, it says, it's a quick summary that I pulled up online. So after three significant battles, the balance of power had shifted radically away from the once powerful Mecca toward Muhammad and the Muslims. In January 630, they marched on Mecca and were joined by tribe after tribe along the way. They entered Mecca without bloodshed, and the Meccans, seeing the tide had turned, joined them. Jesus gets to Jerusalem. No one even notices. When he gets there, there's no welcome. I mean, it's, it's the most bizarre thing ever. It doesn't go the way people would think. In fact, one commentator, one biblical commentator, uh, spent a little bit of time just talking about how it it's ends in awkwardness. This is a story that ends in awkwardness. As Jesus gets there, no welcome, stands around, looks around, returns back to Bethany. And if you're thinking about how do we fit, how do you enter into this story or picture yourself as a part of this in any way, how is this maybe a story that connects with you? Imagine, think about both of the crowds that are involved here. Both of them are convinced of something that gets turned upside down. Both of them have to, are, are completely wrong in their certainty. There's the crowd that we read mostly about in the story. They're singing, you know, they're excited, and they're convinced of one thing, that 
if, this is, if Jesus is going to be a big deal, what's going to happen is he's going to enter as a king to accolades into a real military and political situation that plays out in those realms. And that's their assumption as they take up the palm branches, lay their clothes on the floor for the donkey to pass over and sing these songs. They are convinced it's going to end up as a political kingdom come. That gets totally turned upside down. But so does the automatic assumption of the other crowd that Jesus is about to meet that we'll deal with a little more on Friday. The crowd who's convinced that killing Jesus and putting him on a cross is going to bring about his end. And boy, were they wrong. In a sense, just stop and, and realize that in this story, and I do believe we have to kind of grapple with our connection to it, that the, the characters in this story are all certain, and their certainty is going to get shattered. Yet there's something else in the story. There's, um, there's Jesus as this lone figure who is self-assured, who is a non-anxious presence. He's untroubled as the oddities, as the unexpected seems to happen. Seems absolutely confident about what's going on. And Christianity basically looks at this, what we're entering into today as Holy Week, and they look at it as the time when through Jesus something earth-shattering happens for our cosmos. Redemption is coming. Redemption is coming through Jesus. Something our world longs for. And as it's happening, Jesus seems to be the only one certain and convinced that the events that are taking place are actually going to lead to that. As you think about that, we're left with one option, really. It's just one option. I mean... I guess the other option is to not be a part of it at all, but if you're going to enter into it, your option is basically to say, I'm not seeing the picture fully. I don't know the whole plan and all the pieces of it. But there are these simple actions that people in this story seem to do, seemingly insignificant things, on the journey of this parade to Jerusalem. They're given simple things to do, even though they don't get it and they don't understand the bigger picture. There's, you know, people going out, cutting off branches. There's a couple of people are sent off with this really fun secret mission, you know, to get the donkey with the password. You know, it's like we've entered into the born identity or something, or, you know, Agent 007, where, you know, there's these, these resources and networks that at the right time you push a button, you give a password, boom, donkey provided. It's so bizarre that this story. These two people go and they, you know, they say the right thing, and then there's people with these simple things: take your 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 coat off, set it on the donkey, go in front of the donkey, go behind Jesus, sing a song. Simple actions. And the issue is not that you know the plan and you understand all the circumstances, or that you have clarity. It's that what you're doing revolves around the one on that donkey, and that your eyes are fixed there as you do the simple tasks that you're called to do. This is what faith is, and this is what New Testament faith is. If you look at the, the chapter of the heroes of faith in the book of Hebrews, as the New Testament church is figuring these things out, 
amidst persecution and trial. And these letters are written to Christians to encourage. And this is what is said about the ancients of faith. They did not receive the things promised. This is from Hebrews chapter 11, verse um, 13. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. As you move forward through that argument of the heroes of faith, you get to chapter 12, a couple other lines that are very interesting for what we're talking about today. Chapter 12, verse, uh, verse 1, the end of verse 1 says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He's the pioneer and perfecter of faith, not us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such persecution or opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I think Jesus, through the triumphal entry story, as you puzzle over what could this possibly mean for us, I think it's just one more example, and there are so many of his interactions with people. It's an, it's an example of being invited into the confusion and into the stuff that you might not understand but is a part of his plan. The point being, he's the sole focus. He's the sole point of clarity. And that's actually enough. I don't know how much you idolize clarity. Some of us you know, you can even find this in personality tests. You know, the people who love to kind of work in the muddle and the, and the messiness and the chaos and the others who love everything all ordered and figured out. But all of us, in some way or shape or form, idolize being certain. And I think a, a good question for each of us is, is that getting in the way of actually experiencing God. Or say it like this, does your pursuit of clarity actually not leave room for God? Is there something in, inherent to saying, I, I'm going to try this faith in a God that's greater than myself, and yet it would be ridiculous to then imagine that I understand everything that happens as I put my faith in that God. It has to all make sense to me. <laughs> you can notice the inherent problem with that. And so as we look at Holy Week, if you, if you can enter into what this week is about in the Christian faith and what it will mean for you, can you enter into it with some tolerance for the bewildering? Being okay with the confusion. Maybe having expectations for the unknown and tolerating the cloudy and the blurry, and not immediately trying to tidy everything up as it comes at you. Because the good news of the Christian faith is that it promises you this God who, who aggressively pursues you, and Holy Week shows us that in no greater way. Or nothing shows us that greater than Holy Week. God pursues broken, frail creatures and takes their burden on his shoulder, shoulders through Jesus, 
and brings to you what is undeserved and yet what your hearts are longing for and you're even pursuing through other things but they're not satisfying. God brings you this incredible love. The Christian faith promises that this is secure and that this is yours through what Jesus does this week. But what the Christian faith doesn't promise you is that you're going to understand everything as that arrives in your life. That all the other pieces are going to be clear as that love begins to invade, as you begin to receive it, as it begins to change you. And so I think we're left with simple tasks, like the tasks of the story, like the people in the story. In a sense, you could call them naive simpletons. You know, singing this Hosanna song, laying a cloak on the ground and waving a branch. Ah, this is child's play, isn't it? These naive simpletons. But isn't that all we're left with this week? Simple stuff. Take care of your kids. Simple stuff, you know, go teach a class. I know maybe it's spring break for some of you, so when you get back, teach a class. Punch a time card again. Make some art. Read a prayer card every day. Volunteer to help with the nursery. Talk to a neighbor. Bring a meal to someone. Forgive someone. Let someone in in traffic. Simple things. I think the Jesus of the triumphal entry gives us no other, no other action to do, just simple things. And I think that leaning, if you're to grab hold of God's love and lean into it in your daily life, the only way is through these kinds of simple things. Keeping your eye on the one, on that cult. That's the focal point. Look for clarity there. Let's pray. God, help us as we muddle through challenges and difficulties. May those who find the events and circumstances that you have allowed to come into their life, may those facing these kinds of things be encouraged today in the normalcy of following you in the chaos, in the struggle, and in the tears. And may those who are feeling great, things are aligning and there seems to be clarity. May they not feel like they're in the wrong place because thank you that you give us moments where things do make a little bit of sense. And prepare all of us. Give us layers of faith that prepare us to run the race before us, taking just whatever next step it is and learning to have the focus be on you the perfecter of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.